Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's episode, we're asking who's ahead right now in the world of fintech? Is it the US and North America or is it Europe? Fight. Fight to the death. Let's do this. Having spent a ton of time on the road recently and having really just been a fintech nerd for my whole life, you cannot ignore the rise of the US fintech scene. Whether it's the success stories of Chime, Current, Bond, Unit, Ramp, Brex, Persona, Alloy, Plaid, MX, and everybody I didn't name, please don't at me. There's a velocity to the US fintech scene right now that's just absolutely incredible. But don't forget, Checkout.com, Klarna, Oak North, Kodak. There's a bunch of companies that were based in the UK that are still doing really well. And there's that R word, Revolut. They're still hit here and there somewhere. And everybody I didn't name, please don't at me. Um, but it can be argued the US was late to the party. Europe was having a glut of success a few years ago. Maybe now those companies are a bit more mature. So is the European game over? Or are we going to see another wave? Is the US here to stay or is it time for something else to happen? So um, we've got some great guests and I'm going to get to them in just a second. But before we get to them, I just want to tell you a little bit about what we're working on here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at primer.io. What do the best user journeys and customer experiences in financial services look like? The first annual 11FS Pulse Report looks back at some of the best customer experiences of 2021 and is filled with insight from leading fintechs such as Plaid, Starling, and Crowdcube. We also look at predictions from the industry experts on trends that will affect product design in 2022. Head to 11fs.com forward slash pulse report to download the report and see what's hot in FinTech UX today. All right, let's get started. As always, I am not alone, thankfully. Uh, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests. Uh, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Mr. Pete Lord, who's the CEO of Coda. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, remind everybody about uh, who Coda is, and of course, uh, your perspective, um, given you have operations in both the US and Europe. Thanks, Simon. So Kodat is the universal API for small business data. And we provide uh, real-time connectivity to our clients who are software providers and financial institutions. And that allows them to build seamlessly integrated products for their SMB customers. So that could be a point-of-sale platform like Zettel looking to automate reconciliation for their SMBs uh, or a digital lender like Atom Bank or Clearco who want to create a really slick application journey. So, uh, yeah, we're around 200 people uh, now, uh, up from last time uh, we spoke. That's across the US, the UK, and Australia. And in November of 2020, uh, I moved my family out to New York uh, to grow our presence there. So there was one other person uh, at that time, and now we're up to around 40 people in the US in total. Voting with your feet. Um, I want to get into the whys and wherefores of all of that stuff uh, in the not-too-distant future. Um, making a welcome return 
is the one and only uh, Val Christensen, who's Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. Thanks for being here, Val. Um, again, could you give us uh, a reminder of who Oak North are and, again, your exposure to both Europe and, and, and the US? Yeah, sure. So thanks again um, for having me on. Great to be back. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Oak North is um, focused on empowering the missing middle globally. So businesses that are the most significant contributors of economic and employment growth, but that still struggle to access fast, flexible debt finance. Um, how we're addressing that funding gap is with our credit intelligence software, the On Credit Intelligence Suite, which uh, we use within our own bank here in the UK. And we license it to other banks around the world, predominantly in the US. So customers there include Capital One, Fifth Third, PNC, uh, old National Bank, Customers Bank, um, and a number of uh, other big players around the world, such as SMBC and ABN AMRO. Good old mix. Uh, do some different lending and then sell the model. Uh, it's it's a great place to be. Um, and then finally, uh, making a debut on the panel is uh, Eamon. I don't know how to say your last name, Eamon. Probably should have checked before the show. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself and uh, how you say the name of your company and what you guys do? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Simon. So my name is Amon Gayumi. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Fellows. Um, we are still a very young fintech company focused on uh, essentially re-engineering the debt resolution process for um, consumers and businesses. Um, traditionally, debt collection has been a very, very old school and inefficient process with, frankly, an atrocious customer experience. Um, and we are changing the way businesses resolve debts um, by using machine learning um, to make better decisions. Um, but most importantly, by focusing on providing a delightful experience to consumers. So uh, customers who are struggling financially um, can at least have some peace of mind when it comes to resolving um, their debts. We have been live for roughly six, six, seven months now, but already working with some of the largest companies in the UK. Um, and um, naturally, uh, looking at the US, um, uh, because the US is by far the largest um credit and lending market in the world and therefore also the largest debt collection market in the world. Um, and I personally, I've, I've lived in the U.S. for five, six years. I worked for a number of startups in the U.S. and in the U.K., so I do have uh, a level of experience but also a view to share um, on the different set of cultures and how things are different in the U.K. versus the U.S. Alrighty, thank you, Eamon. Great to have you all with us. Let's get started. Uh, before we jump into the show body, I'm just going to do like a quick fire roundtable. Um, so on the spot, uh, Pete, if you were going to start a company tomorrow, where would you start it, US or Europe? I'd start it in the US and in particular in New York. I'm going to come back to why. Val, how about you? In the UK, in London. And Eamon? Uh, UK, London. Oh, yeah, to think about it. So you see, we've got a good cross-section here, listeners. You've got a Brit who's talking about the US. You've got somebody who's lived in the US for a long time who had to think about it. And then you've got the staunch Londoner, uh, well, actually, the Dane who's now in London, um, Val, who brings a European perspective and flavor. So I think this is going to be a fun show, and we'll, we'll get into the whys and wherefores. Um, so let's start with um, how you describe the US fintech ecosystem in a few words. Um, Pete, you've got a front row seat the moment. I'm going to start with you. Um, and maybe you could contrast it to what you saw in, in London and Europe as, as you were moving around there as well. Um, how would you describe it? Yeah, I'd, I'd describe it as, as very hot right now. Um, obviously, London has been uh, excellent for Kodat and our growth. But uh, what we've got in the US is this combination of very mature 
uh, fintech companies uh, at, at a you know operating at a huge scale. Some of the names you mentioned in your intro, um, right through to you know some unicorns that have, have got to that stage very very quickly, uh, but also you know, a, a whole host of, of new startups bringing innovative new products to market every day. Uh, it just makes it a very very exciting place to be. Yeah, I think that sort of you've got a buyer who's big um, and lots of them uh, is kind of different to like if you're going to sell to fintech banks in Europe, there's you can there's maybe 10 of them on the business side, there's maybe 10 on the consumer side, maybe a few more. Uh, and how many new ones are, are, are being created on, on a day to day basis that, that then hit scale? I think it's a good question for the counterpoint. Val, uh, why would you uh, look at the European ecosystem and how would you describe that at the moment? So I'd say it's uh, it's pretty diversified. Um, it's genuinely disruptive and deep-pocketed. Mm. We'll get into investment in just a second. Eamon, I'm going to come to you. Why, why did you take a while over that answer? Because I think... A, I'm not operating in the U.S. yet, so I don't have that perspective, um, you know, from operating a fintech in the U.S. But my my sense actually is as a as a B2C, um, the U.S. might be more interesting. I think as a B2B, especially as you're kind of building up from the ground, the U.K. might actually be a better place to start. And then growing into the U.S. might be a, a more interesting proposition. That's kind of how I looked at it. Um so, you know, I, I kind of separate out between B2B and B2C here. And from my perspective, I would try to B2B business. I think the UK might be a better starting point. Interesting. All right. Well, let's talk about investment. Uh, according to KPMG's uh, survey on fintech trends, um, total fintech investment in the Americas in half one was uh, well over $51 billion. I don't know what the end of year ended up at, but I think it, w- it went well north of $100 billion in, in investment. Um, and that made more than half of all fintech investment globally, which is absolutely massive. Uh, the EMEA region saw $39 billion, so just short of 40 So 40 versus 50. It's not a million miles away. Um, but Peter, you uh, raised in 2021 a round led by Tiger Global. How did that come about? And would you say that having a presence in New York helped in any way with that? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm sure it did. Um, if, if nothing more than you know, we, we met uh, the investors at, you know, physically uh, in New York, which makes life easier. And it's a kind of a, a long uh, relationship that you, you're getting into, so good to kind of build those personal uh, bonds. So um, yeah, that that round for us uh, has been really important. It, it's opened lots of doors, in particular uh, in the US, because it's really it's really signalling to the market, giving confidence in in what we're doing. That obviously it's innovative, it adds value, um, but that we're investing heavily in our product and in particular in in the US. And, and I think that confidence is a huge signal, especially for investors that know a market um, that, that can then make a difference for it. And it's a huge home market. But Val, you, you hit three or four points wonderfully. Let's um, sort of just dive on the investment point. Oak North is not shy of, of, of a bit of funding, but also you. I know you're a commentator and you have many friends in the ecosystem. How would you describe the European funding ecosystem? I mean, it, it, it sounds like the numbers aren't actually that far apart. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's, uh, uh, we've seen sort of a number of, of mega rounds, but um, a lot of the investors have still been from the US. I mean, if you look at Oak North, uh, you know, our investors sort of span the world. So there's some US investors, there's some Asian investors, there's some European investors. Um, but I think, you know, the market's become a lot more dynamic in in recent years. And, and that's, 
I don't know if it's a chicken or egg, like the investors came and that led to more sort of unicorn fintechs, or uh, there was you know, a number of fintech unicorns, and that led to more investors. So I don't know which which one came first, but uh, no, it's definitely matured uh, hugely in the last, um, you know, five to 10 years. And I'm, I'm interested in your perspective uh, on this. You know, one of the gripes that founders often have is the kind of mid-stage growth um, sort of funding ecosystem. You know, it's it's great near the top if you can get the international, and it's there's a really great seed and pre-seed environment in, in Europe, and and people willing to bet. Has that jived with your perspective, or do you see something different? No, I'd say. I mean, if you look, uh, you know, you mentioned a few of the names there, right? But um, you're still seeing number a number of fintechs who can get uh, very large, uh, you know, nine figure investment rounds, if not more. Um, you know, once they've kind of reached that level of maturity. Um, so, you know, uh, the likes of Revolut, N26, Klarna, I mean, they're still doing uh, massive rounds. Um, I think Oak North is probably quite unique because, you know, I mean, coming up to this February now, it's been three years since we've done a primary fund round, right? Um, that's the, the the beauty of being profitable. And I guess once you reach a certain maturity, um, hopefully that, those profits come. And then, you know, why would you give up that equity if you don't need to? Um, ideally, especially if you're an entrepreneur, right? I mean, um, you, you'd, you'd sort of look at other things. And I think that's somewhere where the US is probably much more advanced is sort of the, the venture debt, which in Europe is is very much in its nascent stage and almost you almost never hear about it. But that's something where, um, you know, I think uh, that's an, an area where there's lots of room for growth uh, in Europe is, is venture debt. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of banks that have specialized in in that, famously Silicon Valley Bank, but there are many others, customers and a few few others out there that have, have really made their name in that. And also everybody I didn't name, please don't at me. Um, Aman, I want to I wanna come to you on this. Um, as you look at the kind of investment scene, you know, you're sort of earlier in your journey. How, are you, how have you found it being a, a London-based entrepreneur? Yeah, I think, frankly, London, when you look at Europe, is probably the best place to be. Um, it's interesting, right? Because traditionally you have a lot of these US, very famous US kind of star, uh, VC firms like Sequoia, Lightspeed, General Catalyst. Um, over the past year or two, they all opened London offices. So they all actually now have boots on the ground here in London as well. And they do UK-based deals, but they also European deals, which which is obviously a, a sign of trust and confidence in the market as a whole. Um, and that 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 helps companies like ours because obviously you know those are the types of firms that we want to work with. Um, I think you know you you touched on this. Europe, from my sense, has always been pretty good when it comes to pre-seed and seed. Um, very very supportive investors. Our investor and credit supportive, but also an ecosystem. I think um, a lot of firms though once they get to Series A, B, C, and beyond, then they have to actually go and find the larger kind of wallets in, in the U.S., Tiger, KOTU, you, ma- you mentioned, they, they actually um, um, are, are U.S.-based, and Pete will, will, will know more than, than me on this topic, but that's that, that feels to me where the U.S. is much, much stronger than the U.K. at the moment. I'm interested in uh, kind of the the size of company and the sort of the 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 glow around them, Pete. I mean, we've seen some European companies that have been able to make it in the US and and some that haven't. Um, so I think about Klarna, for instance, has has done tremendously well. Um, but then, of course, the N26 have have exited. Uh, Revolut has largely 
seem to have stalled out but is still committed to it. Um, Monzo seems to have stalled out. Um, so that do you think that it's easier to be either in buy now, pay later or be, um, sort of B 2 B and make it to the US? Or do you think it's just that um, international expansion, you know, the imperative is is different for different people at different times and maybe some people went a little too early? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's it's brave to uh, expand internationally, um, and you know sometimes the hypotheses you know, don't quite uh, work out, and I don't think that um, a, kind of, uh, a a temporary kind of step back from from a market is you know is is a failure necessarily. So um, yeah, it's I don't think it's a particular advantage for uh, people in a certain industry. Uh, obviously, in fintech in general. The, one of the big differences is you know, the, the laws and regulation in different markets. And that's, I think, typically when most people see challenges in, in that market entry. Val, yeah, I, I want to come to you. Um, I'm sure you've got a point to, to jump in on, but I also want to sort of talk, um, stay on that that unicorn side and just read out some some stats before you do. Um, so apparently there are, when we uh, pulled this data in August 2021. Uh, there are 157 uh, companies in the billion-dollar unicorn club um, for fintech. Um, I imagine that's probably about 300 now. Um, how much of this is is macro and investors being risk on? We've seen as interest rates are starting to rise uh, that potentially you know, a lot of these have taken a hit in their valuation in the public markets. You know, PayPal's really uh, taken a hit. Square's taken a hit. Coinbase um, and and many many others. Uh, do you think that uh, this unicorn club is is optics, or are there you know are the real businesses being built for the for the long term here in, on both sides of the of the Atlantic? So I think um, you know there's there's a sort of obsession with um, valuations, and there needs to be more of an obsession on the value that everyone's delivering. Um, you know the value the value for customers. Um, it's uh, fine, okay, you reach a certain valuation, but um, you know exactly to your point, it's whether you can stand the test of time, right? Um, and uh, I think one of the benefits that UK businesses or, or European businesses have is. Um, you know, a lot of the corporate governance, the reporting structures, you know, you have to do all of that, right? I mean, um, at Oak North Bank, uh, we've had to to issue our annual results every year since inception. So you have to have a lot more transparency, a lot more of that sort of corporate hygiene in place, which I think, um, you know, you go across the pond, that's not something that's a requirement. And so you suddenly go public. It might be worth unpacking that for U.S. listeners. So interestingly, uh, FinTech Insider, about 40% of listeners in the U.S., 40% in Europe, uh, 20% rest of world. So for the U.S. listeners, like it might break your brain to realize that every registered company in the United Kingdom has to publish their accounts transparently, and they're available on Google for anybody to go see. So if you want to know how much money 11FS made last year or Oak North made last year, that's public information. Which, sorry, Val, I, I just wanted to unpack that. No, no, no. I mean, and I think you know, but that's such a, a key point, right? Because it means that in terms of that, um, the, the the steps of going from a private company to a public company, it's it's um, potentially a bit easier for European businesses and and particularly UK businesses rather than than US ones. So I think um, you know that's perhaps where some of the the names that you mentioned. It's sort of um, once uh, push comes to shove and things get a bit more tricky, uh, you know they they potentially haven't uh, had to to prove how they can stand the test of time and, and prove that resiliency in their business model. Yeah, I saw a man. You wanted to jump in there. Um, what are your thoughts as we think about unicorns and these massive companies? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
from a consumer's perspective, right, uh, or or a B two C business, um, you look at the market sizing, right, and you look at the US as a as a as a market versus the European. Each individual European country has a market, and you add them all together, and they roughly get to the market size of the US. And I think there's a natural tendency um, for European business to therefore be smaller if they don't expand, right? And you add the complexity in fintech specifically on regulation. So as a debt collection business, for example. If we were to get regulated in the U.S., we actually have to get 50 separate regula- regulatory approvals um, in each individual state to the U.S. so we can op- act and operate in each individual state as a debt collection agency. And so the complexity um, is pretty large, but the reward also is pretty, pretty big. So I think if you're from the ground up, though, set up in the U.S. Um, with that market size, it's much easier easy and exclamation points but i think it's much more natural to to get to a certain level of uh you know size if you had to product market fit whereas in europe you, expansion is just a requirement it's a necessity right so you look at Klarna, you look at revolut you look at all these businesses they all operate in 10 20 plus countries um and that's part of their um, advantage but it's also you know makes it very very hard to operate right yeah and, and i want to talk um about Scandi companies in particular, Scandinavian companies, Val, because we've seen uh, Sweden in particular, but uh, Scandinavian region produce a lot of unicorns. Do you think there's something about uh, having a smaller home market that forces you to build the DNA to expand um, that's that's really helped with that? I also think about um, the guys from TransferWise, aka Wise, you know, very close to to the Estonian market, um, but sort of domiciled in the UK, so they always had uh, a leg in two worlds. Do you think there's something about Europe that teaches you going across borders rather than going across states? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think if you, I mean, if you look at uh, Denmark, where I'm from, right, it's a population of six million people. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of like if you don't look beyond your your, your immediate home, you're probably not going to have a very big um, market, right? I mean, it's a population that's less than uh, you know Greater London. Um, so I think there is, you know, there's there's much more of a willingness to to kind of um, to look beyond uh, your 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 main country, and if you think about some of the names that you mentioned earlier, you know PayPal. Half of the founders are European. Robin Hood, you know, one of the founders is is uh, European. So uh, you know Stripe, obviously European. So I think there are uh, you know there there are a lot of um, fantastic uh, European founders who have then um, you know obviously gone over to the US and and continue to scale there. I don't think it's something that you necessarily put in the water. I think it's just that in the US, because of the, the sheer size of the market, you can sort of find, uh, you know, uh, the total addressable market, the talent, the investors, uh, without really needing to kind of um, go beyond the US. And so there's perhaps less of a, a tendency or a willingness to do that. Uh, Pete, talk to me specifically about New York, because one of the, you know, for, for many years, uh, it, Silicon Valley was a great place to be. The Collisons, of course, based Stripe there. But Patrick Collison put out that, uh, you know, sort of five or six years ago, 80 plus percent of Stripe employees were in the Silicon Valley region, and now it's like 39 percent or, or less. Um, but New York in particular is seeing, you know, it's Plaid, it's many others uh, that really are current and, and many others are sort of based around there. Why do you think that's become a bit of a hub specifically? Yeah, I think. Um, COVID was one of the um, influencers there. So uh, lots of those businesses uh, that were based in the Bay Area went went remote and people who had moved uh, to the area for, for work found that uh, actually they could, they could live wherever they wanted. Um, and lots of people who uh, I think wanted to come back to uh, a city that um, you know, was was thriving that you could 
go out and about in sooner have, have decided to call New York home. I think uh, I'm interested in uh, your perspectives, having spent a little bit of time in New York with with fintech in particular. Um, how would you describe that as being different on a day to day basis? Is it um, culturally? Uh, is it sort of uh, you know what are the what are the main differences that you've observed, if any? Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's hugely different. I think uh, culturally there is perhaps um, a more of a tendency to believe that. You know, anyone software engineer can make a, a dent on the universe that perhaps we don't have quite to the same extent in somewhere like like London, where perhaps there's uh, people are, are maybe tend to think a bit more as a kind of realist. Um, but I think it's just the density that New York has of, of fintech. You know, in the in the building that we've we've set up shop in, there are there are a couple of other fintechs. You know, just just in that. Um, block. So uh, that's, what I think, what makes it such an exciting and vibrant place uh, to be building a fintech company. You, you say that, but I'm sitting in an office and Starling's across the road on Fido's right there, um, right next to where Monzo used to be based. Sorry, Val. No, I mean, I was just going to say, I think, you know, it's the sort of um, kind of to Pete's point, it's the, the American dream mindset, right? That uh, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background, um, you know, you can go on to build an amazing business. Um, and you see it, you know, time and again, right? I mean, the fact is that Europe has never built a Facebook. It's never built, rightly or wrongly. Uh, it's never built a, a, a business of the size of, of, a, of a Facebook or a Google um, you know, and even if you look at the Far East, right, you've still got, um, you know, businesses like Alibaba, Tencent, you know, and Financial, obviously part of the Alibaba group. You know, again, it's sort of like, well, why hasn't Europe been able to build a business of, of that sort of size? I think you're starting to see it, um, you know, with some of the, the valuations that are coming out. But uh, but again, it's sort of um, how are those businesses fair, you know, once, even when they go public? Um, and I think part of it is, is that mentality, right? I mean, even if you look at... Uh, scholarships and things in universities in the US. I mean, it's an extremely um, developed scholarship program. There's lots of them. They have them for pretty much everything, whether it's academic or sports related, uh, music related, and so on. And that's just not something that you see as much um, in somewhere like, uh, you know, Europe. And, and therefore, your opportunity to go to, you know, a world-renowned university might simply be unavailable, no matter how intelligent you are, because uh, it's perhaps just too expensive. Um for you. And I think that's something that, again, the US is uh, th- through creating that talent pipeline, um, you know, that's that's a lot of opportunity that's created. Yeah. And, and to, to, to add to that, I think having lived and worked and actually went to university in the US, um, one thing that I believe, you know, I'm, I'm German, I'm from Germany, and Germany, I think, is much more to that culture than the UK. But still, I think failure is looked at it very differently in the US versus Europe. So in the US, failure is almost seen as a success, right? Because at least you tried, right? You, you gave it your best, you tried and you learn from failure and then off you go and the next one might be bigger and you might succeed. And if that one fails as well, then it's still the third shot, the fourth shot, the fifth shot. And at some point, if you keep going, you will succeed. You will, you will get to that point and failure is much more, you know, just a milestone on your, on your path to success and, and, and much more seen as a kind of a learning, um, uh, a learning role. Whereas in the, U- in the UK and Europe, it seems to me oftentimes that failure is actually seen as failure, right? You as a business fail, you failed. Your business failed. You you you, uh, you let your team down, and 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 I think that that sense breeds with itself also kind of um, danger in the sense that people actually don't make that move, right? Oftentimes, people who who might have a very good idea, who might have 
very good plans of actually starting that business and doing it and going out are, are scared of failure. Um, and I think that culture adds adds to that. And I think the U.S. there is is worlds beyond um, um, Europe from that perspective. Yeah, and I would just sort of follow on with that. Um, speaking as a comms person, you know, I've dealt with press in the U.S. and I've dealt with press uh, here in the U.K. And you know, it's not anything to do with the the slightly British accent. I think it's just that there's uh, much more of a willingness to celebrate the underdog and uh, you know the entrepreneurs who are creating jobs. Um, you know, who are helping drive uh, innovation, productivity, and GDP growth. Um, there's, you know, they always say it's like if you can if you can manage PR in the UK, you can manage it anywhere because the U- the UK press or the British press are the most cynical. Um, and uh, you know, in some ways, that's a very good thing because it means that uh, you know companies are held to an incredibly high standard. Uh, but it also means that you know, um, you know, when you go over to somewhere like the US, um, the the reception you get is often quite surprising compared to the experience you might have had uh, in the UK. Yeah, I think it would surprise an American listener some of the responses or some of the things you see in the mainstream press in the UK around some of our challenger banks, neobanks, um, and you know the the real focus on are they profitable yet? Um, oh, there's this, and anytime there's a, a negative story on them, that gets a, a massive amount of coverage in a way that that, that I don't think it would play. Um, so I want to come back around to this, um, and I'm just going to take a quick break whilst we hear from our sponsor, and then we're going to change tack a little bit, and maybe maybe just talk up Europe a little bit and then bring back that word, that wonderful word that you said, Val, earlier, which I really want to dive into, the the customer word. Um, And actually, are we solving any problems? Because all of this was like great industry inside baseball um, or inside cricket, whichever you prefer. Um, But uh, we want to make sure that we keep the customer in mind. So uh, we'll just take a quick break here and we'll be right back. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket. All right. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Uh, let's bring us back. I think we were sort of uh, rounding there a little bit on Europe and, and talking up the US. Let's let's come back the other way. Val, you you opened up with um, kind of some some support for uh, for Europe in, in particular. How would you describe the European uh, ecosystem uh, for an entrepreneur and some of its some of its benefits and why we've seen uh, companies built here that have succeeded in the US? Yeah, so I think um, you know one of the the big uh, the, or the main points is uh, regulation, right? I think you've got incredibly forward-thinking regulators and policymakers, um, and you've seen that with a number of initiatives such as open banking and GDPR. So, sort of the the way that that's made uh, consumers much more mindful of their data and what they're sharing with businesses, and also how their data can be leveraged to help them manage their finances more effectively. Um, we've obviously been beneficiaries of that, uh, you know, securing the the third new banking license in 150 years in the UK. Um, and and that is very different when you go to the US, right? I think, um, Eamon, you sort of talked about it, sort of going and trying to get banking licenses, or if you were trying to get operational um, licenses across sort of 50 states, it would be incredibly difficult, time-consuming, um, costly, and resource-intensive. Um, you know, I think 
uh, I would say talent is sort of on par uh, in the sense that you've got a number of world-leading institutions here and a lot of world-leading research in, uh, uh, universities here as well. So I think that's, you know, in terms of getting access to fantastic talent. Um, Europe is also well uh, geographically paced in terms of being able to do business with the Far East and with the US. And I say that because we have hundreds of colleagues, uh, you know, over in, in India, we have dozens of colleagues in the US and then hundreds of colleagues here in, in the UK. Um, and the ability to sort of uh, speak with or arrange a call that's going to work with everybody, um, you know, is, is, is potentially quite difficult if you were if you had a whole team that was based in the US. Something really interesting that's happened post-pandemic is I'm seeing uh, in whether it's a Slack group or a Discord, uh, people are using the UTC timecode, um, the universal timecode, which happens to be London time. Um, and so everything is timed around that because it is in the middle of the day. Um, for, uh, just down the road in Greenwich, that's where um, sort of Greenwich mean time was invented and the, and the time zone. So that's kind of a handy trick that we have for having once having had an empire. But it, but it does... Uh, sort of uh, create a network effect, as you say, that you can do business with Asia in the morning and, and the US in the afternoon. Um, so I think there's there's definitely something to that. Um, reflections, Pete, I saw you uh, nodding when uh, I was talking about sort of the, some of the regulation pieces. Do you have anything to add on the on the regulation side? Yeah, well, I guess um, when you say regulation, uh, open banking is what comes to mind for me. Uh, and I think that's, that's quite a nice um, kind of topic where we see uh, Europe taking a more regulatory approach, um, the US taking more of a commercial approach to effectively um, come to the you know, a very similar destination. It's just via different routes. Um, so when I talk about more of a commercial approach, I'm talking about companies like like Plaid, for instance, um, and their approach to um, you know, being able to allow consumers uh, to access their their data and, and it and you know, to be integrated into the other applications they use, um, much like open banking. And I think, you know, if you, I mean, like the reason I said at the very beginning, you know, if I was to start a business today, I would do it in, in specifically in London. Um, and that's because London, you know, is very unique, right? And it has sort of a combination of factors that are actually very difficult to replicate in, in another market. I mean, you take somewhere like the US, you know, you may have fantastic tech talent in Silicon Valley, you might have a financial hub in New York City, you've got policymakers um, in Washington. But in London, you've got all three of those things within a couple of tube stops of each other. Um, and that's just not something that you'll find in many other places around the world. So the ability to have, you know, that going back to that word ecosystem um, in somewhere that's, uh, you know, a few miles from from one another is um, is really quite special. Yeah, it is a little bit unique, Amanda. What's been your experience around sort of the the talent side as an entrepreneur in London, and and um, you know, especially given uh, the German background, we know that uh, some of the German universities have tremendous comp sci courses. I'm interested in 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 your view on some of some of that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, I think so. Also, from an American perspective, right? I actually think that Europe has a very very um, unique kind of um, opportunity when it comes to talent, especially take 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 Brexit for, out for a second. But I think the ability of traveling, you know, for an hour from London to Paris, to Berlin, to Copenhagen, to, to Madrid, to Barcelona, I think is something that's, um, especially with the new way of working, is something that's incredibly interesting for software engineers who can work asynchronously, right? They don't need to be in an office anymore. They have much more flexibility of how they want to work, how they want to design the deep work. If they prefer to work from 9 p.m. to you know 5 a.m., you know that 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 that's up to them. 
And I think that brings with itself less reliance um, on the Bay Area, for example, where traditionally you had just these massive hubs of software engineers jumping from one kind of startup to another one and jumping from Facebook to Google to Apple to, to Netflix and, and, and you name it. And with that comes an opportunity for startups like ours who are London-based to tap into that talent pool, um, where previously, you know, engineers who, who were SF-based were, 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 were no-go zones for you because you also couldn't afford them. Even engineers who are based in countries like Bulgaria, Poland, who um, who are incredibly talented, who um, have incredibly incredible well experience on the computer uh, on the computer science side, um, uh, they are now they are now available to you. So I think Europe actually now very much post pandemic is catching up to the US on the talent perspective, specifically from a software engineering side. That's super interesting, isn't it? Yeah, um, for the US context, like Eastern Europe has just tremendous uh, software engineering talent, security talent, um, and punches well above its weight. I was speaking to a founder uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, based in Bangalore. Most of his team's based in Bangalore, um, but he uh, has launched a business. It's called Juno. Um, they're a sort of DeFi crypto wallet hybrid, so they issue a checking account where you can also get 5% APY yield on um, stable coins. So it looks and feels like a checking account, except I'm getting 5%, which in this market is, is kind of unique. Uh, really interesting business, really interesting company. He was saying that post-pandemic, the and, and especially with the explosion of the Indian tech ecosystem, those things have really coalesced. And the fact that talent was you know, kind of arguably more affordable than Silicon Valley is, is starting to go away. That ARB is, is completely going. And he's now looking at Eastern Europe um, to, to sort of outsource. So it's, it's kind of interesting how that, that ARB has gone. You can genuinely work from anywhere. Um, and that point of like Silicon Valley has gone into the cloud is, is, is kind of interesting. Uh, it's just sort of maybe some of the cultural aspects and some of the the people's knowledge around it and some of the investor knowledge maybe maybe hasn't gotten there yet so it's, it's an interesting perspective um all right so we've not got long left i could go on on the inside baseball stuff for for as long as possible but val you mentioned the customer word um and you know are we keeping the customer in mind here because uh, i remember uh, one ron shevlin uh, a writer at forbes and cornerstone advisors certainly putting out a piece that i think summed up a lot of the atmosphere uh, in the us when uh, monzo n20 and Revolut were looking to enter the US market. And, and I think it probably didn't help the way it played in the press, which was, oh, well, how will you compete, European neobanks? We will compete on having better products than you. That does sound a little bit like we were talking down to them. But as you think about the products, I, I often find myself contrasting the European products with some of the US ones, because there's a real creativity in Europe that I don't think always, always necessarily gets its shine. Um, would you agree with that? Or am I just talking complete twaddle? No, I think I think there's some truth to that, and and you know I think I mean one of the articles that always resonated with me that that Ron wrote was, um, you know that the the businesses that will succeed, the fintech businesses that will succeed, are the ones whose focus is on enabling the banks and collaborating with the banks, rather, you know where they'll make the bank their customer, um, you know rather than than their competitor, and I think you know that's something which you know if you look at those um, fintechs that have gone on to do well in the in the US. Um, you know, I mean, Oak North is still very much in the beginning of that journey, but you know, our customer are the bank. Our customers are the banks. Um, I think it's sort of a kudos to um, you know those those British and European fintechs that um, you know very large U.S. institutions and very forward-thinking um, banks like Capital One, like Customers Bank, are actually partnering with British fintechs, um, and that they see you know value in the product there rather than than sort of saying actually let's look at a fintech in. 
um, you know, in in California or or New York City or or elsewhere. Um, and I think you know there's there's a lot of truth to that right from the experience of some of those fintechs that you mentioned. This idea of uh, making the banks your customers um, and sort of enabling them rather than trying to compete with them that might be the recipe for success in uh, across the pond. I also wonder if timing played a role. So um, forgive me for editorializing for a second, but I, I sat with a, a lead engineer of one of the largest fintech apps in the in the US by quite some way. Um, and they were toying with a, like, how do we do this type of payment? And how do we do that type of payment? And I got them out my app and I showed them how, uh, well, it was actually 11FS Pulse. I showed them how Monzo does it and how Starling does it and how Revolut does it. And they're like, oh, those are all really cool. And I was like, yes, you should get yourself an 11FS Pulse account, first and foremost cheap plug but also like people just don't know like there are there is some real creativity there that i think that i think is really powerful I, i'm mindful of time i am going to have to close this out here so um i'm just going to go quick uh, around the horn i think we talked a little bit about this at the opening but quick fire questions uh, who's ahead right now so not in three years time not where the momentum is but who's ahead right now is it the us or europe val europe amen U.S. Pete? U.S., uh, but it, it's not a one-horse race. Oh, it's going to get interesting. Yeah, this is definitely going to be one that there are many races to run um, and there are many dynamics. I hope, listeners, uh, you took a, a lot from this discussion. I'm excited to do this again with you guys. Maybe in a couple of years' time, we'll come back to it and see if that's still true, especially as inflation has just been announced as 7% in the US and fintech and tech stocks are down 52% off their 52-week highs uh, and incumbent banks are closer to 10% off their 52-week highs. So who knows? Uh, this could all change yet. Um, that wraps up today's discussion. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, people can find out more about uh, all of your companies. Uh, Peter, let's start with you. Uh, where do they do go to do that? Firstly, our website, codat.io, uh, C-O-D-A-T dot I-O. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter, at Pete underscore Kodat. Perfect. Val, how about you? Yeah, if you want to uh, learn more about our UK bank, it's oaknoth.co.uk. And if you want to learn more about our software that we're licensing to other banks, it's just oaknoth.com. And if you want to reach out to me personally, I'm on LinkedIn or Twitter at Val Christensen. Fantastic. And everyone, how about you? Yeah, you can find us on ophelos.com, O-P-H-E-L-O-S.com, um, and also on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, more than happy to answer any questions about myself or the business. For US listeners, think True Accord for the UK. That's that's my hack. Like I always I, see. Th this is what I found. I deal with the US so much now. I have to. I have to do that thing. Oh, it's like that. Yeah. Okay. I know that thing. Um, Already. Uh, just call me your translator. You can find me at sy taylor on Twitter, or you can find me at 11fs.com. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe to this podcast. Tell all your friends about it. And if you want to join the conversation, email us podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much, and goodbye for now. 